You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey folks, welcome to this episode of The Bible for Normal People, our first recording, Jared, in the... Quarantine epic. Quarantine epic. And we're like... How many did we break any laws getting to the studio today? I don't, people I don't know. are out and about. We're pretty close to six feet away, though. Yes, we are pretty close to sort six of. Feet I hadn't even apart. thought about that. <laughs> we are now. <laughs> there, I just backed up a few backed feet. Up. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, and not to make light of it, but yeah, that's that. That's it. So we were like almost. We were going to stay home and do this remotely, yeah. which we hate doing because I have dogs that bark, or you have kids that bark. What uh, one of those two yes, things? Lots right? of so, barking. Basically. So we were a little bit afraid of that, but then I thought to myself, hey, if that happens, people understand. People yeah. are doing well. All sorts you'll of see stuff, when you know our guests had some kids in the background. And yeah, that it's has, just that's it's the new cool. reality. You know, it is a new reality. At least it's we're not cool. on video conference and our spouses and like accidentally walking behind us with their underwear or something like yes. that. So. <laughs> Right, we're, exactly. We're actually ahead of the curve here. Yeah, so. we're doing pretty well. So but today, today our guest is uh, Yi Jan Lin, and she actually goes by Jan Jan, so right. that's what we call her in the yeah. podcast. But why don't you give some of her credentials here, Pete? Well, Super the, smart. The topic is immigration and the book of Revelation, which you might not think go together very well, but they do. But uh, Jan Jan is an assistant professor of New Testament at Yale Divinity School, no slouch, and her PhD is in New Testament, and she got really interested in the book of Revelation. Well, and if you look in her history of the things she writes about, she's very good about drawing, synthesizing these things that you wouldn't normally put together in these really interesting, not you know, sometimes you can kind of say, oh, I don't know if that really goes, but she's done her homework, and I think yeah. it was a really good conversation. Well, and the the whole idea of synthesis, I mean, she's a trained New Testament scholar who is interested in integrating that text with something, let's say, relevant, you know, and not just, I mean, I shouldn't say just, but, you know, a lot of biblical scholars, and I like to do this too, we stay, we want to understand antiquity, but then the question is, well, who cares? Right. So so she's taking this book and talking about how it has informed political rhetoric in the United States and elsewhere and and like once you see it it's like oh yeah I guess that does come from the book of revelation and it and it affects and it has hurt people and it's been a little bit toxic and xenophobic and and violent and misogynistic and it and, and it's sort of rooted in in this book and I, I thought it was just a fascinating study on on ancient and and contemporary and how those things come together excellent well let's have this conversation with uh, professor Lin is it really the text that is going to tell us what to do or do we bring a stable sense of ethics to the text and I would say for a book like Revelation and maybe for most texts if not all texts it has to come from us so it's not as if I just sit here and let revelations do its work it's rather that I come and I make meaning out of it and as a person who wants to be ethical then this is the kind of interpretation I want to put forward or point out harmful interpretations that have come from the past well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. 
So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. Hello, Jan Jan. Welcome to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Hi, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So, we have a lot of fascinating stuff to to talk about. Pete and I have been nerding out about it all day here. But before we do that, just we have this interesting, um, you have this interesting story of starting your academic career, if we can put it that way, in in English literature, mm-hmm. and then you made a turn to Bible. So, we're curious, what, what prompted that that turn for you? What was that shift about? Sure. So, yeah, I was in English literature, and when I graduated with my bachelor's degree, I thought, okay, I'm definitely going to pursue something in academia, and I thought I, that would be English lit. And I went to the University of Chicago to get a master's, and it's not really the most friendly place in the world, let's just say. And I was completely unprepared. So I got there, I was taking these courses, and I was completely in over my head. I had never read theory before, and it was just really a shock. So at the end of that year, I just didn't want to go on. I didn't know what to do. And a close friend of mine at the time was enrolled in his Master of Divinity at a nearby seminary. And at the time, I'm in a different place with my faith now, but at the time I thought, you know, Maybe I could really make a difference or have something that feels more immediately relevant to my life, to rhetoric that's floating around. If I did something with that's still text-based, but uh, instead thinking about scriptural texts and sacred texts rather than in English literature. So that's when I then got the MA in New Testament and then moved on from there. So that's that's really the the big shift was thinking about I, I still want to go on some sort of intellectual journey, but I felt so burned at the time. I, you know, I might have done things I might do things differently if I go back now, but um, I kind of just went to a completely different track and thinking also in a different way about relevancy of academia. That's not to say that I don't think literature is still not is still relevant or any of those things, but or not relevant. But yeah, so that's that's basically it in a nutshell. Yeah, and and you have a huge interest in the Book of Revelation. Yes. Yeah, that's <laughs> not a secret. So yeah, you know, a, a question I get a lot from like when I ask students in an intro course in Bible, like for those that know something about it, because not all young people do, even in Christian context. But like, what do you want to talk about? Somebody always says, "Can we talk about the Book of Revelation?" Because mm-hmm. it still is very fascinating. So. Can you just, on a real lay level, just give us your take on what that book is about? Like, you know, where might it be set historically? Mm-hmm. And what what is largely the point? Because there are all these different competing camps and approaches to this book. So, what's yours? Yeah. So, I mean, if you are interested in its original historical context, you know, uh, people hypothesize that it was probably written under Emperor Domitian, um, that it was written during a time where there was some sort of persecution of Christians, that it's written by a Jewish Christian in imitation of Jewish apocalyptic literature. So, in the mode of Daniel, for example, or, or passages we find in Daniel um, and, and other apocalyptic uh, works that we can find in Jewish lit. And so, it, it that is the setting um, in which it's projecting this other vision of what reality really is, what's the real real, to pose that against what might be the reality faced by its original audience, and whether that's under the Roman Empire in um, some sort of 
persecution, suffering in some sort of way. And th- so that is the, the historical context most scholars would agree on in terms of thinking about the book of Revelation. No, so it's not predicting the future like – it's not like reading today's newspaper or something <laughs> like that. It's, it actually has something to do with historical moments and use the word apocalyptic mm-hmm. and and then you said the real real. Right. Right. Can you tie yeah. those – because that's really interesting. Tie those together. So – I mean, the genre of apocalyptic is like, what? what is it is kind of up for debate. But one thing that it seems to do, so apocalypse or apocalyptic is something that reveals, right? That's based on that Greek word. So revealing something underneath or behind or, or kind of just that that's real beyond what we think immediately is real. So that's, that's where, why you have something in Revelation where it's like, seems like code or it's imagery that's really bizarre, but it's trying to convey something that says there is a different reality that is better or um, coming or any of those things, right, that will replace this reality or that's actually going on beyond what you see right now, beyond the Roman Empire, beyond the reality that you're suffering at the moment. So, there's a revelation of that. Um, And so, that's where we get that term is this, this, this unveiling of something real behind what you're suffering at the moment. And so, I think that's the major concern in a book like Revelation where you have a different throne room, a, a different power seated on the throne, a different judgment and condemnation of things against set against Rome, um, definitely, and placing on that throne, ultimately Christ, right, the slaughtered lamb, and so presenting a completely different reality to, to in, in a coded way, so to speak, um, that's that's full of imagery and all of these things to show what's really happening. So, it's, it's a document of, of faith, really, and, and inspiring in a particular way, and also kind of a double speak, where you know, there's imagery that you have to decode and understand. So, that kind of bleeds into now more contemporary readings of telling the future and, and decoding that book. But in its original context, that might not have been the intention. The intention might have been simply, you know, we know something and here's a way of expressing it um, that you can understand that's not the reality you're suffering. So, one of the things that's really interesting about the work that that you do is connecting, you know, I think in my, uh, when we think about the Bible, we often think about the original context and we think about how we use it maybe today to apply to our lives and churches or some context like that. But you've done this historical work of connecting how uh, Americans in generations past mm-hmm. have used the book of Revelation to talk about immigration right. and some of the, the points of there. So, could you, just an overview of that of that work or maybe connect the dots between Revelation and immigration and how you thought to connect that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's not the kind of thing people would just like wake up in the morning <laughs> right. and say, you know, I bet you there's a connection between the book of Revelation and immigration. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, me. it, it seems... O- obviously. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, no, it, it is as seems like a leap, right? What, what would ancient Jewish literature have to do with immigration, especially, you know, in a 20th, 21st century setting? And that's not the first thing that comes to mind. But it all started with my thinking about I guess that the hopes and dreams of immigrants and the whole experience of immigration, right, in which you're arriving at a new destination and you have these hopes that are kind of utopic, right? You feel like you're going to experience or there is a, a talked about hope of experiencing some kind of dream or there's a vision of something that's beautiful, wonderful, in which you can leave something behind or you're fleeing. And so, that that in and of itself is apocalyptic. And as I began to think think a little bit more about that and thinking about 
that kind of framing, the more I thought this, this really does relate to the language we have in Revelation. And then when I do the historical research and looking in the archive, that's when I start finding that there is a shared language and that language from Revelation is used in describing America, first of all, right, as kind of a New Jerusalem um, in an apocalyptic way and as a utopic destination, but also in describing who gets to be in the U.S. or America and who is excluded. And that kind of rhetoric is also using apocalyptic language from Revelation. And so, more and more of those themes seem to overlap as I looked at what seemed like two disparate entities. Yeah, and so, so you're, you're actually saying that it's not just the language is similar, but that there's really like an influence. Yeah. Right? On the part of the book of Revelation on how people have talked about immigrants. Yeah. And I mean, I could just pull up one example here. Um, we, we talk about city on a hill, right? City on a hill is used to describe America and the U.S. in many, many different speeches. And that comes from Matthew. That comes from the Sermon on the Mount. But it is apocalyptic in some way, right? It's talking about some sort of example and shining city. And in in Matthew, the context is Jerusalem, that that's going to be the city on a hill. Now, what's interesting is that Reagan, um, in his farewell speech at the end of his presidency, goes to talk about the city on a hill, which he references all the time in his political speeches. He describes in detail what he sees. And the way he describes it is taking exactly from Revelation 21 almost. So, he'll say things like, a tall, proud city on rocks stronger than the, uh, than oceans, windswept, teeming with people of all kinds, living in harmony. If there had to be city walls, the walls had doors and the doors were open. So, that's mm. coming from Revelation 21, I would argue, in which you have Jerusalem, New Jerusalem on firm foundations, the 12 foundations. It's the nations are walking by its light. The kings are entering it. The gates are never shut by day. All of those things, right? So, it starts, there's this very much a borrowing of language from Revelation. Yeah, and I mean, that's, I'd never put those two things together, but to me, that's pretty darn obvious as you describe it. And this is, you said this is Ronald Reagan? Mm -hmm, That's right. So, would you, I mean, I, I guess... We don't know whether he's necessarily thinking about this connection himself or whether he's really heir to a longer tradition That's true. Of, yeah. of using this kind of language. It goes back pretty far, would you say? Well, the city on the hill goes back to Puritan days, and it's kind of brought back to life by JFK, and Ronald Reagan takes that up. But I, I would say that using maybe not this particular set of elements, but using New Jerusalem as a framing of... America has been around since the Puritans were coming to colonize New England. And so, there we have, you know, all sorts of references to building a new Jerusalem and their vision of what they're establishing in this place they're going to. So, that that is an understanding, a really definitely apocalyptic understanding of what their mission entails. Is that is this apocalyptic? It, it, you just mentioned the words utopic, and when you start thinking about the immigrants' vision of America or wherever they're going to end up, um, there is this utopia way of describing that. Mm-hmm. Is that where... Is that where this revelation language comes from? Is this sense of America as this utopia, this set-apart place? Um, And so, basically, we're just kind of paralleling heaven on earth as America and how many of our politicians through the generations have 
equated those, I mean, I would guess for oftentimes their own political gain in terms of uh, speeches of what kind of America they see in their future. Yeah. Uh, but is that is that where these these connections come from? I think I think I would say yes. In the beginning, it does come from the very first immigrants. So we don't usually talk about Puritans or explorers as immigrants, but they are right coming to this. So they're they're framing it as a destination, and they're they're viewing it at least in terms of um, some of those traveling to the quote unquote new world to make discoveries, and then the Puritans are understanding it in a Christian apocalyptic sense. They're very explicitly doing that now as. People become established and take over the land that they find and colonize. That rhetoric continues, but who are the immigrants and who are not begins to change, right? Obviously, we have those who are established Puritan communities uh, in what becomes New England, and then others coming in from Europe, right? That starts to change. And then as the population of who's coming now and who's claiming nativism, those populations start to change what the rhetoric around Revelation is. So, Revelation is really useful both in casting an apocalyptic vision of a destination for those first arrivals, right? But then it becomes really useful in talking about exclusion, because then you have the flip side of Revelation, which is also about those who need to be kept out. And so, it's, it lends itself very well to both sides of immigration, whether a destination or whether it's part of exclusion as well. And if we can keep going on that, because there was this fascinating thing I read that you'd, you'd been talking about around prostitution mm-hmm. and the U.S. border. Could you say more about that particular example and how it fits in this narrative of exclusion? So, when I think of Revelation in terms of thinking about gender, right, there's definitely one particular figure that comes to mind, and that is the whore of Babylon, right? And she is representative of a kind of corrupt power in danger and all of these things. And there's a, there's an exoticizing of her in the language, um, in which she's, you know, dressed in these clothes and she's part of this commerce and wealth and all of these things. So it's very orientalizing. And I make the connection of that with the first laws in some of the first laws and policies that we have in the U.S. government against immigration, which is the Page Act in 1875, which is prohibiting particularly Chinese women from entry in understanding any of them as just by assumption as prostitutes. Um, And so, as seen as either vulnerable to this or as a corrupting exotic female sexuality that's going to come and enter into um, something that's pure, which is the the nativist Americans who are on the shore. So, um, that's where I draw that that parallel between the two. And were there examples of the language of that kind of Hora Babylon, or was it more imagery that would have been in the air that you would make that connection with? So, I, I think there it is less the language that's being used in Revelation, but more of the kind of orientalizing, exoticizing, sexualized imagery that you might find in political cartoons, in historic newspapers, um, and depicting, you know, the, the, the threat of the East and Eastern women and also Eastern men um, in this particular way. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. 
Fast-growing trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And fast-growing trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. So, okay, so the language of Revelation, it sort of has two angles mm-hmm. that you can take depending on where you're located, so to speak. It's, it's the vision of the future and hope and a fresh start. Mm-hmm. It's apocalyptic. It's the end of an era and the beginning of a beautiful one, but then what do you do then? You know, like uh, 50 years goes <laughs> right, by, 100 years, right. 200 years, and now the rhetoric of Revelation is keeping Rome out, so to speak, and and anything that, you know, what you don't agree with or what doesn't support your, your, your the social network, the community you're a part of, mm-hmm. that gets... I guess demonized, really, and 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 you look for those things to keep you safe and separate from the bad people out there. Right, and that's that sounds like it's very deep in the American psyche. Yeah, and I would say that that using the New Jerusalem as a framing of this, the identity of this land of this nation, has really had this domino effect, and and every every other way we think about people who should be included or excluded, right? So, they're on several levels. So, one, just thinking about America as a New Jerusalem, you're suddenly thinking about this vast country, right, as a city. And that kind of shrinks the whole thing down into one thing, right, that becomes very unified in identity. And so, imagines this uh, unified identity. And then it also 
imagines, if you imagine a city and you're framing it that way, then you also have a wall, then you also have a smaller space, you also have a scarcity of resources. So it does all these things when you start using this metaphor over and over again. So you can play on different fears and concerns that a city has, which, you know, the U.S. really isn't, right? But it's a giant country and it has lots of um, opportunities for people coming in. But when you shrink it into a city and you think about it as a new Jerusalem, then you have defense and you have threat and you have a scarcity of resources. And those are all the trips that are trotted out when you think about exclusion and inclusion. Um, And I think having that metaphor haunt Uh, The identity of America leads to a lot of this kind of thinking. I mean, of course, there's also political uh, desires and things like that. But this metaphor then is very expedient to keep using because you want to play on people's fears of of those who want to come in and invade the city. All right. Well— you used the word wall. I didn't. (laughs) Right. So, (laughs) I mean, it's. it's, I mean, you know, not not to polarize things here, but. I mean, I guess one of the bigger picture, let's say, for understanding the rhetoric of building walls today in America, I mean, maybe getting a broader historical perspective on that might be helpful. It's not – the mentality isn't a new thing. Right. No. It's, it's, it's – again, it's baked into our – Fear of outsiders or wanting to stay safe. Well, our, our mythology. Yeah. Our mythology, say. right. Yeah. 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 I would say so. And I mean, walls have, I mean, this, this sounds stupid and obvious, but, you know, walls have been around for a long time and they serve very particular purposes and they have a very, you know, particular rhetorical force, right? It's a protection. It's a barrier. It assumes we have control. And I think that those are those symbolic meanings that people want when they think about a wall, um, that we have control of who's coming in, we know, and there's um, some sort of defense so that we are safe. Those are all things that walls and wall symbolism have meant through the centuries and centuries they've existed when we did have cities that were surrounded by walls all the time. And so that continues to be expedient today to talk about in terms of our country. Hey folks, warm greetings from the chilly land of igloos and toques. No, seriously. My name is Paul Mark, and I'm from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and I'm part of the producers group here at The Bible for Normal People. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 per month, you can be part of that group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a thanks for your support, you will discover videos from Pete and Jared, a discussion group, and other ways to engage in community. So I highly encourage you to check it out at patreon.com slash the Bible for Normal People. One thing I appreciate about being part of the Patreon group is knowing that I'm contributing to the spread of solid scholarship when it comes to the Bible. If you've gotten something from this free podcast, please do consider supporting Pete and Jared at patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group who truly helped the podcast improve and make it what it is today. So a huge thanks goes to Jason Mann, Angela Smith, Rob Buckingham, Kendall Miller, Miles Dance, Lori Volke, Marlon Wall, and Peter E. Watts. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Now back to the podcast. Well, with that too, there's many different uh, ways of thinking. And I'm I'm thinking because we're recording this now in the midst of this COVID-19 thing. And I I can't help but think too of... um, some of the things that are being associated with with China or Chinese people mm-hmm. in relation to that, and then other ways of thinking of 
you know, what are we trying to keep out? And there's probably also like diseases mm-hmm. and I, I, there's a lot of theologizing about this. And is this God's way of dealing justly with our injustices? Is this, you know, how is God involved mm. in a lot of this? And I think that's very, not just revelation, but comes from kind of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomic yeah. theology, retribution theology, that if you do bad things, God will do bad things to you. And a lot of that comes in the form of disease and other things. So, is that part of this as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, disease and divinely inflicted disease is throughout both Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. And Revelation plays on that as well. And, you know, the, when I started to look more carefully at the text and thinking about cleanliness and disease, it comes out in places that you wouldn't think. So, for example, in Revelation chapter 22, when you have entry into the city and the saints are coming, they are called the blessed are the ones who are wash their robes and so they can enter the city. And the outsiders are the evildoers and the filthy, right? The filthy will stay filthy. That's what the text says. So, it's it's as if cleanliness is, is literally next to godliness, right? It is the, the symbolic <laughs> right. nature of righteousness. They have these white shining robes that they can come in. And and also, if you think about bulls of God's wrath, and, and there's like a three repeated series of plagues that are visited on people outside or, or before the New Jerusalem descends. And there's plague, and there's also these foul, painful sores that break out on people. So, it's there's definitely this association of those who are excluded as diseased and um, not able to enter into the city. And that, that's interesting because I think it's an important thing to say that you, say, you, you this is in the Bible itself. You know, there are those things that we say, oh, we're maybe reading that into the Bible or we've put our own uh, things onto or projected onto. But we see in the Old Testament, New Testament, and here in Revelation that that's actually part of the theology of our Bible is this is how God deals with problems. Yeah, partly, yeah. Except for Jesus, when he says, no, God doesn't do that. Right. <laughs> yeah, but what does Jesus have right, to do right. with the Bible, Pete? Uh, our, our, our diverse Bible, here you go. But, well. but you know, I guess but there is a political rhetoric in Revelation, I guess, right? Yeah, and, absolutely. And, um, which is fueled with by the apocalyptic rhetoric, and you can't divorce those two things. And, you know, it's just sort of their way of expressing their faith – in that particular context. And I think that's tempting for people of faith to sort of, well, we'll just do the same mm-hmm. thing, whether it's instinctive or whether it's deliberate or whether it's just through osmosis. So, I mean, how what, how can people approach this book of Revelation and like take some of this – this is a big question – but to take some of the rhetoric seriously and understand it but not do that? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, not do that. Not, don't use it to claim insider status and others are right. dirty on the outside right. or demonizing people who look different and come from different countries and things like that. To, basically, not to be afraid of, of immigration, not to be afraid of the outsider coming into your holy space. Yeah. And how, how can – I mean, just just on a very practical level, if, if – you know, this is a hard book, but to help people think about – like what some of those images might mean, how they could be reimagined, transformed for a different context, a different culture. Yeah. So I, I have a couple thoughts on that. So the, the first is it is important to recognize the kind of text that Revelation was in its historical context and keep that in mind, that it is strong rhetoric, political uh, rhetoric, as well, as you mentioned, against a 
particular empire that is Rome. Um, so there, there's some of that that needs to to have a role in the way we're interpreting to have that knowledge and to not say, well, there's obviously a one-to-one transfer to what's going on right now, and and that obviously applies. At the same time, Revelation is a bizarre book, right? It has things in it that we don't know what to do with, and many people have tried. And I think that's what's fascinating about it is it's kind of this changeable set of images that, and you have, you know, if you look at interpretations of Revelation in scholarship and then also in popular culture, people have done lots of different things Revelation, whether it's seeing it as a really redemptive, liberative text that really talks about lifting oppression and offering liberation. People have read it as an eco um, green text that is about protecting the earth or having a vision of some sort of um, redeemed earth and heaven, et cetera. And then there, there are other ways to read it, right, which are millenarian, or we have, you know, thinking about end times and things like that. And then also in the ways I've talked about it in terms of exclusion. So it lends itself because it's so bizarre in its imagery. You can, it's almost like you could do whatever you want with it because it, there's no stable ground in some sense. So at that point, I would say, okay, is it really the text that is going to tell us what to do, or do we bring a stable sense of ethics to the text? And I would say for a book like Revelation, and maybe for most texts, if not all texts, it has to come from us. So it's not as if I just sit here and let Revelations do its work, right? It's rather that I come and I make meaning out of it. And as a person who wants to be ethical, then this is the kind of interpretation I want to put forward or point out harmful interpretations that have come from the past. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that is a new way of thinking, I think, for a lot of people. I mean, Jared and I are sitting here nodding our heads, but the, the, just the honest recognition that at times – you have to interrogate the Bible sometimes yeah. on the basis of an ethical standard that maybe we can anchor in the Bible – you know, um, I, I joked before about Jesus saying that no, you're not you're, you're not hurting because you sinned. You know, you're, you're not that the tower didn't fall on you. Right. You're in some disease because because of something your parents did. Right? Um, we have that, and and maybe it's a matter of 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 highlighting. I mean, frankly, I mean, people say don't have a canon within a canon, or don't pick and choose. We all pick and choose. We all have a canon within a canon. And maybe this is a really good example, the Book of Revelation, yeah. for not letting it guide our theological discourses for today. You know, Jared, we had um, Brad yeah, Jerzak on, yes, you know, a couple of years ago. Brad Jerzak is an Orthodox uh, theologian, and he he enlightened us how the book of Revelation was, it didn't make the cut in the canon until quite late, mm-hmm. and after the ecumenical councils. And um, so he says the Orthodox Church doesn't get their theology from the book of Revelation. They use it for worship because it didn't make the cut early enough. <laughs> you know, I, that's sort of a nice way to get out of it, I think. You know? But um, yeah, I mean, do, you, do you see like a fundamental disjunction between how the book of Revelation is really the voice of the disenfranchised and how the rhetoric is used in our context by the group that's in power? I think, I mean, what do you mean by disjunction? Or, or no, dis, uh, dis, uh, the disenfranchised, you know, in, in, in the first century. Oh. It's the people who are getting beaten up by the Romans and, and looking for some hope to hold on to this slain lamb of God when they've got the Roman economic war machine just down their throats and tempting them to give up and all that. But today, 
you know, that right. same rhetoric is used by people who are not the powerless but the very powerful. And I find that to be an interesting kind of juxtaposition that has to be addressed on some level. Yeah. I mean, I think, yes, there is definitely the use of that by people who are not recognizing that the audience of this kind of literature, I mean, mostly Jews, right, who do not have power, do not have a domination of the world that they exist in, um, at the writing of Revelation. At the same time, what's troubling to me, though, and this kind of takes your your question in a different way, is that it, there are also parts of Revelation that mimic Roman Empire, right, that take the structure of a throne room and um, Roman victory and power and, you know, domination, and then rewrite it as divine, but at the same mm-hmm. time, it's reusing that symbolism, right? So, it's it's troubling to me. It's I don't think it's, you know, that's why I say it's like it's it's neither nor. It's neither fully mm-hmm. redemptive or, you know, fully, you know, let's smash everybody who doesn't fit into this picture. But rather, I mean, you can use it in so many different ways. Like, it is both critiquing power, but also reinscribing it, right? Re-justifying it by its vision of what divine power is and the symbols that it uses. So, I think it's troubling in that way. Um, and so, again, I think interpreters yeah. have to be careful. So, in some ways, it you know, it still participates in the systems of imagery that would would represent kind of I think of like a political system. All it's saying is I think of um, for some reason I think of Nietzsche here mm. um, in his concept of kind of uh, resentment of we're not really smashing the system of power. We're just going to resent the people who are powerful now, right. and we're going to really we want to be in that seat yes. at some point. Yeah. And that's kind of what Revelation does is it's just recapitulating it. But now we've just switched players rather than questioning the system itself. Yeah, yeah. I would say so. I I think what feeds into that is the sense of the persecuted Christian minority in America. Right. You know, we're we're the disenfranchised, so you know, we 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 want the power back. Well that's what I was gonna say is is (laughs) is you know, the problem with having Jesus as the center of our faith and having this narrative of we want to work on centering the decentered and the disenfranchised is what happens when you're in power? Right. Like, that's the cognitive dissonance. And so, my tradition growing up, it didn't matter really, I think, I'm going to be careful how I say this, but it didn't really matter how persecuted or not we were or how in power or not we were. We had to have our identity be persecuted and, and the minority. Right. Or else the rest of our narrative didn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. There's a struggling against that becomes very formative, right? That it has to be yeah, part of well that, said. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to get back to what you said before about describing Revelation as using some of the same imagery that the people in power were using against them. And I think that's a really, really important point. I hadn't quite put it together like that before. But I, I guess that's an example of – I mean, sort of all theology does that. You know, I mean, isn't that true? I mean, maybe, maybe I'm overstating. <laughs> I'm going to hesitate but, and not. <laughs> I, yeah, let's let's hesitate when we say all. But I see it's common that we use the language of the culture we're in yeah. to talk about the gospel, hopefully in a redemptive way. But it seems almost inevitable that, and so you have here the to me that normalizes the Book of Revelation in the sense that I see what they're doing. Now I need to be really careful how I use the rhetoric mm-hmm. of this book in a different time and place. So, it's a recognition that all theology is going to have maybe one foot in something that 
maybe, maybe it shouldn't be stepping in. You know, right. and, and you know, if we interpret God according to American ideals, right? We're we're sort of falling into the same kind of, uh, you know, potential, just very problematic way of talking about God and about the life of faith. Yeah. So, are you saying, Pete? Because I want to, I think you've made this point too. Is in the past. I want to be clear. There's a sense in which we have to judge revelation for, like you said, uh, Jan Jan, you mentioned we have to bring our own ethical framework to it. And in some places we have to judge it as that is not the kind of ethical framework we want to embody and enact in, in our current time and place. Like the book of Revelation participates perhaps in some unjust imagery of, of political situations mm-hmm. or whatever it is. But I hear you saying, Pete, yes, that's true and – we have to recognize that it could do no other in the sense that it's simply participating in the uh, the imagery and symbolism, the representation that's available to them, the language that's available to them. Because I, I won't want it to be come across as – I think then sometimes we create this binary where we say we can – we want to dismiss or judge revelation in terms that, that we just couldn't possibly keep up with. Like we're going to call it immoral or unethical – in, in a way that, what, what did we expect it to be? It was written a few thousand years ago in a context that was very different than we are today. So in some ways, we may want to judge it or dismiss it for that. But on the other hand, I don't think what you're saying is we can forgive it and just go about continuing to circulate these maybe unjust ways of thinking either. Right, yeah, mm-hmm. because it's using the language of the only language they know. You know and we do the same thing yeah. as we're sort of yeah. human beings. But, you know, most people, you know, the topic, if just talking about immigration again and the political scene, we're having a pretty sophisticated discussion right now on the book of Revelation. And most people who, who like the rhetoric just see it. it's in the Bible, it's the Word of God, and it's got to be relevant somehow. So, like, how effective has that been, in your opinion, in either recently or, you know, you know over the past maybe two, three hundred years? Has that been effective? Has that worked for the people in power to 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 continue this kind of rhetoric? Oh, absolutely. I think, I mean, we brought up plague, for example, or disease in one, and I'm thinking of the fear of disease in uh, 19th and 20th century rhetoric about integration, and even, of course, more recently and in the current crisis, where you have depictions of, for example, Chinese people in Chinatown as literally embodying malaria, smallpox, leprosy, or, you know, Irish immigrants as being blamed for cholera and then having imagery that that's very apocalyptic in showing the specter kind of looming over the country. Or I have a political cartoon in which Chinese people are actually grasshoppers or locusts, actually, with the faces of, of Chinese coolies, and they're eating up the land. So it's it's using this imagery very politically, right, to say we need to keep these out and using these kinds of images coming from a relation in a very politically expedient way to make that point um, and to show that kind of danger that's coming in. And so I I think, uh, I mean, that's one kind of extreme example, but I see it's been politically expedient to use it in other ways. Um, 
when we think about those who are excluded in, in terms of wall symbolism and thinking about how it keeps out, you know, murderers and those who are dogs, um, so bestializing other people, um, and that kind of rhetoric, too, coming from understanding America as the New Jerusalem. So that I think that's definitely been very useful in, in talking about exclusion in a negative way in the, in the last couple of hundred years. Yeah, and, you know, that, that rhetoric— I guess it doesn't originate from the Bible in the sense that I guess we have to treat people like this because the Bible says so. It's more the Bible comes along for the ride. Right, yes. There's there's something already there. Right. And I mean, what would – can we say more than just hatred or fear or is that really what it is? It's just people just are afraid and and they'll appeal to things that – they trust in like the Bible and they know other people will listen to, to, to sort of foster that kind of fear or, or is there, I mean, I guess we're getting sort of psychological and sociological right. here, but what, why do people do that? You know, why, why, why go out of your way to make somebody who looks different than you do and get God on your side to drive them into the ground? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's, I guess I'm of two minds. Like one is, yes, I think it is fear. I think a fear of change, a fear of identity, a fear of a different world than one we're used to. That's always going to be, you know, change is hard. Um, and change makes people really uncomfortable and unsure and it's unfamiliar. At the other side, if I want to be more cynical, I would say that it's it's power, right? That you don't want a loss of power and you don't want to be dethroned um, in the comfortability that you have or in, in a political sense from having political power and domination of a particular place. And so you use this kind of rhetoric that you know is vastly appealing to a large community of believers. So that I think there's, there's two, I mean, obviously more than that, but those are the two that come to mind for me. Yeah. So in the face of a threat, yeah. you sort of scapegoat. You pin it on somebody else. That's a threat to you, yeah. like calling it a Chinese virus. Right? Well, and, and when yeah. we bring it to the Bible and how we read the Bible too, I think it's also um, very difficult for people not to see themselves as the protagonists of all these stories. Like I don't know of many people who would look at their own tribe and say, look at how we've been a scourge, uh, look at how we've been a plague to – and so there's something, I think, sociological or psychological about that, which would, for me, again, come back to the diversity of the Bible, which I think is why the the prophetic books are so valuable, because you have this self-critiquing that is often absent in a lot of these examples, Jan Jan, that you've given and how we use this rhetoric. Um, it's used as a weapon outwardly. It's rarely for critical self-reflection. Yeah, that's interesting. So, um, I mean, one, one thing that... Uh, you're you're talk you're going to talk about in your book that's going to come out in the next fifteen years apparently right that's <laughs> right. A, some some apocalyptic I know academic <laughs> books they take forever right. but um, but something just caught my eye that you make a connection between immigration and what you call apocalyptic bookkeeping <laughs> right uh, yeah. right which I think is a hilarious way of putting about the book of life uh -huh. and have your name written in the book of life that's just that's a very interesting theological connection can you flesh it out a little bit yeah so I, I have to be honest that's the one that I've had the least time to look in the archives yet for but to kind of give it the historical background there is a theme in apocalyptic literature and also of course in revelation in which you do have these heavenly books you have when people are 
waiting to come into this place, in order to gain entry, you need to open the records of everything you've ever done. So either that's a book of life or a book of deeds. They have different names. In Revelation, it's the book of life or the book of the lamb. And there's actually more than one book um, that get open. So I just see it as like the most bureaucratic passage of of the New Testament when you, and books were opened right and it's like it's kind of like you know if you've ever been in an immigration office or seen that kind of thing it's it's very reminiscent you have huge lines of people right this is like everyone who's ever died and lived right and you have to have these books opened and then at the end it's all kind of arbitrary because they open all these books the only thing that matters is if your name is in written in the book of the lamb and I don't I don't want to be totally flippant here but it just seems like yeah there's a lot of this is mirrored in the way we think about who gets entry and the process of, you know, entry into this country and records and, you know, your deeds and, you know, all of these sorts of things that then become this bureaucratic in and out kind of gatekeeping. Um, And does that always have to be the case, right? Why do we even think about immigration in terms of records? And, you know, of course there are reasons, right? But I think it's become a very matter of fact way of thinking about it. And I, I think, Reading it, cross-reading at Revelation sort of asks important questions like, why do we existentially believe in this kind of thing? What are the theological groundings of understanding records, records keeping, and inclusion? So I'm not sure that there's like a one-to-one, right, of Book of Revelation inspiring the way we do immigration. But I think there's a lot of overlap, and I think it asks important questions of each other, right? So the things we take for granted in Revelation and things we take for granted in immigration— why, right? To ask the big questions of why is this necessary and for what reasons? Maybe they can each help us understand the other. Yeah, that, I, the contemporary I think so. scene in the past, yeah. right? That's very interesting. Yeah. So this this has been a, a fascinating conversation. I love how we've pinged from various things, uh, plagues and bookkeeping and all kinds of things, and related them back to immigration and, and the Book of Revelation. Um, so before we go, if people want to continue the conversation, kind of go a deeper way, either with you or other materials. Where can people find you? Yeah, what's your this? house address? Where do you live? What, uh? <laughs> well, we're all in quarantine right now, so you cannot come here. Um, <laughs> uh, but you can reach me at my um, Yale email address, which is uh, uses my full name, so it's spelled Y-I-I hyphen J-A-N dot L-I-N at Yale dot E-D-U. That's my email address. And you don't mind if people reach out and ask you follow-up questions based on what we've talked about today? Because I think there may be a good amount of questions. Sure, that's fine. I mean, I can't promise how quickly I can respond, but sure. but that's fine. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks again so much for uh, for being on and sharing your expertise with us. Well, thank you for having yeah. me. Sure, Jen. Jen, thanks so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you haven't already checked out Patreon, we would appreciate your support. Go to patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. And a quick shout out to our team that makes this possible to Megan Kamek, our podcast producer. Our audio engineer, Dave Gerhart. Community champion, Reed Lively. And Stephanie Spite, our transcriber. We couldn't do it without you guys. Thank you. See you, folks. 